due to the graphic nature of these crimes. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of gambling addiction, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Jack Branson surveyed the sea of mourning faces in front of him. He wanted to focus on grieving for his Aunt Anne, but the police didn't have any solid leads. As a former FBI agent, Jack couldn't just sit around and wait. He was trained to see everyone as a suspect, even those who came to her funeral. Dark thoughts swirled in his mind as his cousin Russell made his way over to say hello. He looked as devastated as Jack felt. The two caught up for a moment before Russell asked if Anne's killer would ever be found. Jack wasn't sure, but he certainly hoped so. Either way, the investigation would probably be extensive. When Russell heard this, his mood seemed to improve. It seemed like he was really pleased with Jack's answer. Jack hoped he was just being paranoid, but in the back of his mind, he wondered, what was Russell Winstead so happy about? Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll discuss Madisonville, Kentucky's local legend, Anna Mae Branson. After the elderly millionaire was murdered, the police investigation spanned several years and two countries. In the end, Anne's killer was brought down by those closest to her. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries there was a lot of excitement there was a lot of skepticism 
the impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Anna Mae Winstead led a charmed life from the get-go. She was born in Madisonville, Kentucky in 1917. Her father owned one of the city's many coal mines. Thanks to his high-ranking position, Anne and her siblings had everything they could have possibly wanted. New dolls, nice clothes, and plenty of food. But when the Great Depression hit in the 1930s, the Winstead family had to recalibrate. Most of the local mines shut down, leaving hundreds of thousands of Madisonville residents unemployed. It's likely that the Winstead mine met the same fate. We do know that the family was hurt by the recession, which might have been why Anne decided to strike out on her own in 1935. She married her high school sweetheart, Carol Branson, at 18 years old. Carol's childhood couldn't have been more different from Anne's. His family pinched pennies struggling to maintain their small farm. It was a major change to her lifestyle, but Anne's love for Carol outweighed any reservations she may have had. With his help, she adjusted well to her new life. Soon, she found that she actually enjoyed working. Whether it was around the house or for someone else, a job gave her purpose. So, as the World War II effort increased, Anne happily took a position in a munitions factory as a real-life Rosie the Riveter. She and Carol saved their paychecks and eventually created a comfortable life for themselves. It wasn't extravagant, but it was well-earned. Carol might have been happy to go on like that forever, but Anne had bigger dreams. She wasn't ready to give up working even after the war ended in 1945. Between her experience in the factory and watching her father run his mine, she had a taste for business, and she wanted to give it a try for herself. In 1950, Anne sat Carol down and told him she wanted to pour their savings into a Dairy Queen franchise. The chain had only recently started expanding, and the idea itself was pretty new. Madisonville didn't have a single fast food restaurant, so she and Carol would have the market cornered. While it seemed like a golden opportunity to Anne, it sounded like a huge risk to Carol. It took some serious convincing, but eventually he gave in. With his help, the couple was able to purchase their own restaurant. Anne's dream became a reality. And she wasn't just the mastermind. She was also the one in charge. At the time, most people expected Anne to be Carol's silent partner because of her gender. But she ran the show and demanded respect. Although she became known as a tough boss, Anne also treated her staff like family. In time, her leadership abilities paid off, and her Dairy Queen quickly became the hottest spot in Madisonville. Whether someone was looking for their first job or going on their first date, it was the place to be. Before long, the Bransons were millionaires, and Anne was back to enjoying a lavish lifestyle. She and Carol bought a beautiful old home furnished with carefully curated antiques. Anne updated her wardrobe and started accessorizing her outfits with 12-karat diamonds. She started to be known around town for her flamboyant, glamorous lifestyle. 
but the phrase, money can't buy happiness, is a cliché for a reason. By the early 1950s, Anne and Carol had been married for 15 years. Although they loved each other very much, the couple had their fair share of issues. Anne often felt like her feelings came in a distant second to Carol's, if he considered them at all. But she never shared these concerns with her husband. Growing up, her father apparently didn't seem to feel emotions at all, let alone express them. Anne learned from his example and bottled up her feelings, especially the unpleasant ones. Before we get into Anne's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. What Anne and her father might have seen as strength was actually an intensely lonely way of living. According to marriage and family therapist Sherry Foos, vulnerability is the key to authentic and satisfying relationships. Unfortunately, vulnerability wasn't necessarily a part of Anne's vocabulary. While she was a sensitive person who craved genuine connection, her emotional detachment made it hard for her to reach out to her husband. The couple soldiered on together for years, but Anne's creeping sense that something was missing never really went away. Eventually, she started turning outwards, surrounding herself with others to fill the void. She and Carol both came from large families, so there were plenty of brothers and sisters who lived close by. Most of them were married with kids by this point, leaving Anne with plenty of nieces and nephews to dote on. She loved them all, but was partial to her sister's son, Jack. We don't know why, but Anne and Carol never had children of their own. Jack was the closest thing to a son that Anne ever got, and she treated him accordingly. She loved to spoil the boy and constantly gassed him up, promising that he would achieve his wildest dreams. She beamed with pride as he moved away to pursue a career in the FBI after high school. She was happy for her nephew's success, but she had to be crushed to see him go. It left her with one less person to bond with. However lonely she might have felt, Anne still had a reputation to maintain. As the head of one of Madisonville's most prominent families, she was widely beloved. So it was bittersweet for everyone when, after 40 years, she and Carol finally sold their Dairy Queen. Although it felt like losing an important cultural landmark, Carol was 76 years old and Anne was 73. They'd both earned the chance to relax and enjoy their fortune. It just didn't come as naturally to Anne as it did to her husband. Carol happily settled into retirement, but Anne had never been a homebody. She volunteered at their church and joined a bridge club to stay active, but that wasn't enough. Being busy wasn't the same as being fulfilled. Before long, she started looking to get back into business. This time, Anne ventured into real estate. She decided to find an old house in need of a little TLC, fix it up, and then rent it out. It was exactly the kind of thing she excelled at. In no time, she acquired somewhere around 40 properties, and her net worth steadily increased in turn. She was finally feeling like herself again when tragedy struck. In 1994, Carol passed away from cancer. 
Anne was devastated by the loss, but as always, she kept a stiff upper lip. In the wake of Carol's death, Anne remained unstoppable in business and in life. But just because she seemed invincible didn't mean she actually was. As it turned out, she was an easier target than anyone could have anticipated. Coming up, Anne puts her faith in the wrong nephew. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the podcast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. In 1994, 77-year-old Anna Mae Branson had just lost her husband, Carol. Although she worked hard to maintain her image as an unflappable businesswoman, she hid a powerful loneliness inside. Desperate for connection, she turned to people who still needed her, her family. Anne had always doted on her nieces and nephews. She had been especially close to her nephew, Jack, when he was a child, but he'd moved away after high school. Now she had room in her life for a new favorite, and her brother's son, Russell, was happy to step in. Like Anne, Russell was born and raised in Madisonville. As a boy, he was a whirlwind of energy. His wild nature often put him at odds with the rest of the family, who prided themselves on being cool and respectable. Russell's parents worked hard to squeeze him into a Winstead-shaped box, and eventually their efforts paid off. By elementary school, he was known as a calm and quiet kid, but his choice of hobbies showed a hint of the hellion he used to be. Russell grew up around cars. His dad, Earl, had a collection of vintage vehicles he'd restored. Russell was fascinated by them, and like many boys his age, he became obsessed with NASCAR racing. Drivers like Dale Earnhardt were like superheroes. Russell couldn't resist the thrill of flying around a track at hundreds of miles an hour, outmaneuvering death. But becoming a real driver was nothing more than a dream for many years. 
1985, real life started taking precedence when 20-year-old Russell married Denise Harris. Before he knew it, he was 29, supporting his wife and three sons as a mining engineer. Even then, though, he hadn't given up on his true passion, racing. It wasn't a hobby that Russell could easily participate in with his mining salary. Luckily for him, Anne was an early supporter of his dreams. In 1991, she bought him his first race car. From then on, she spent most of her Friday and Saturday nights at dusty raceways, proudly cheering Russell on from the stands. And Russell was captivated by the feeling of the track. It was exactly as he'd imagined. The roar of the engine made his heart race and adrenaline pump through his veins. To say Russell was hooked wasn't just a figure of speech. According to Dr. Margaret King, the neurochemicals that flood the body after a high-risk activity feel similar to a drug-induced high. And for better or worse, the human brain is adaptable. It can build up a tolerance to almost anything, including adrenaline and dopamine. Before long, Russell stopped getting the same superhuman feeling from racing he once had. But then he won his first feature and it all came rushing back. After the victory, he got a fair amount of press in the local paper. The Madisonville Messenger published several articles on his racing career. But off the track, his life was far less exciting. Much like Anne, Russell was well-liked by those who knew him. Charming and friendly, he fit the bill for a small-town family man. And with the Winstead name to live up to, it was an important reputation to maintain. But his track record wasn't exactly flawless. His image was almost tarnished sometime in the early 2000s, when his marriage to Denise suddenly collapsed. Russell didn't stay single for long, though. In February 2001, he married Terry Rainwater. Once upon a time, Terry had been close friends with Denise. The details are scarce, but there were whispers that she and Russell were having an affair. Despite the rumors, however, Russell still managed to maintain his air of respectability. The truth was that no one knew the real Russell Winstead. He was racing less, and after nearly a decade, he probably wasn't getting the rush he used to. Eventually, he discovered a new way to score the high he craved, gambling. Terry knew her husband spent time at the casinos, but she didn't know he was doing anything more than dropping quarters into slot machines. But the high he was after required him to take much bigger risks. Russell's preferred game was blackjack, and he rarely approached the table with less than 10 grand. Where he initially got the money was anyone's guess, but the casinos treated him like a high roller. He was given free rooms and sometimes even comped meals. And it didn't take long for Russell to get used to his new lifestyle. He was back to feeling like a superhero. This time, he even had a secret identity. At home, Russell was a simple man, a husband and a father. But at the casinos, he was practically a celebrity. But though he gambled like a big shot, he didn't actually have the money to back it up. His salary wasn't nearly enough to support his habit. 
If he wanted to keep going, he needed to get his hands on more cash and lots of it. So Russell got creative. One of the first times he borrowed from his Aunt Anne, he asked for $10,000 to buy a piece of mining equipment for work. On another occasion, he went to his father-in-law with a proposition. Russell said he knew of a classic car for sale that he could flip for a profit. He just needed $8,000. Neither Anne nor Russell's father-in-law ever saw their money again. Russell couldn't stop. By the end of 2002, he had amassed a staggering $1.6 million in gambling transactions. Of that, he had lost $106,000. As he dug himself deeper into debt, the list of people who were willing to put their faith in him was dwindling. Soon, there was only one person left who Russell could convince to loan him money, his good old Aunt Anne. We don't know what he said the money was for, but in early January 2003, Russell asked Anne for $27,000. She had always seen the best in him, even when no one else did, so she agreed to give him the cash. But there was a caveat. He wouldn't be getting another cent until he started paying her back. Russell bit the inside of his cheek. He'd lost track of how much he owed her a long time ago, but he knew she hadn't. Anne kept close tabs on her money and wrote down every transaction in her little red ledger. She was a businesswoman and Russell knew she was serious. But like every gambler, he took the risk anyway. On Wednesday, January 8th, Russell's pockets were burning. He asked his friend, Jeff Hibbs, to hit up the casino in Metropolis, Illinois. Jeff was a coworker and sometimes gambling buddy, but this time he wasn't interested. Payday wasn't until Friday and he was broke. Not to mention the casino Russell wanted to go to was nearly 100 miles away. They had to work at 6 a.m. the next morning. Russell assured him that wouldn't be a problem. The casino was sending a limo. They could sleep on the way home and be back with plenty of time to make it to work. Although he played it casual, Russell knew Jeff would be too impressed to turn down a free limo ride. And he was right. Jeff was in. The night started off with a bang. Russell's first few rounds at the blackjack table were good enough that he gave Jeff some cash to have some fun of his own. But the good fortune was short-lived. Things took a turn and by the end of the evening, the entire $27,000 was gone. During the limo ride back to Madisonville, Russell lost his Winstead cool. Jeff had never seen his buddy act like that. Russell cursed and yelled and cried out in despair. He didn't just owe Anne, there were other people expecting to get paid too. He knew he had to face the music at some point. He was running out of time and options. So though he dreaded it, Russell knew there was only one way to get out of his rut. He had to go back to Anne and beg for forgiveness and more cash. On Friday, January 10th, he asked her for another $9,700. Anne was floored. She'd written him the last check less than a week before. 
Her generosity had already been stretched to its limits, and her business sense was telling her that Russell was a bad investment. Promises weren't going to cut it anymore. Anne wanted proof that Russell was going to start paying her back, so he wrote her a check for $12,000. He told Anne it was a demonstration of good faith, but that she couldn't cash it just yet. He wouldn't have the money until Monday. Anne sighed and recorded the transaction in her red book. Russell was back at the casino on Saturday evening. He tried to hype himself up. Tonight would be a great night. It had to be. But when he got to the blackjack table, it became clear that Lady Luck had abandoned him once and for all. He lost everything. He was given a room for the night as consolation for his loss. Russell woke up on Sunday feeling awful. He couldn't wallow for long, though. His family expected him to be home for church that evening. First, he needed to stop by his ex-wife's house. His sons usually joined him and Terry, so he figured he'd pick them up for the evening service. Tyler, his oldest, was the only one there when he arrived. It wasn't the first time Russell had bailed on his boys, so Tyler didn't pick a fight about it. He just got in the car to spend what little time he could with his dad. Not that Russell was good company that evening. Tyler could tell he was in a bad mood. Russell barely looked at him and repeatedly lost his train of thought. During the church service, the only thing Russell could think about was the check he'd written to Anne. She was going to deposit it, probably tomorrow, and it would bounce. Worse than that, Terry worked at the bank. She would see the whole thing. His double life was on the verge of being exposed. He had to think fast. After the service, Terry headed back to the house and Russell dropped Tyler off at his mom's. He had one more stop to make before going home. He needed to talk to Anne again. That night, Russell sat in his truck outside of Anne's house, working up his courage. He didn't know what he was going to say or do. All he knew was that he had to get that check back. His family, his reputation, his life as he knew it hung in the balance. Coming up, a brutal crime sends shockwaves through Madisonville. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. On January 12th, 2003, 37-year-old Russell Winstead sat outside of his Aunt Anne's house. He knew he'd messed up badly, but he prayed to God that Anne would forgive him. He tried to get her money back, but fate had other plans. Russell took a few shaky breaths, stepped out of his truck, and walked to her door. Then he knocked. When Anne opened up, Russell launched right into begging. She couldn't deposit that check, not ever. He couldn't pay her back. 
He needed more time. Anne cared for him deeply, but she'd never been a pushover. By that point, she didn't believe a word that came out of Russell's mouth. Clearly, her nephew needed to learn a lesson in consequences. Despite his empty promises, Anne didn't budge. When Russell finally accepted she wasn't going to back down, he stormed out of the house, reeling like a petulant child. Russell's thoughts raced as he paced outside by his truck. Anne had no idea what she was doing to him. She was about to ruin his entire life over $12,000 she didn't even need. His rage burned so hot that he started to sweat. It's possible that Russell's anger was connected to his gambling problem. A 2016 study from Science Daily linked gambling to an increased risk of violence. It also found the risk gets higher the more compulsive a person's betting becomes. Russell's addiction had put him in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt with no way out, except through violence. That might have been when the braid's hammer in his truck caught Russell's eye. An old mining tool similar to a pickaxe, it's both blunt and sharp, built for breaking earth. Before he knew it, Russell was stalking back to the house, hammer in hand. As soon as he made his way back inside, he charged at Anne. She ran to the basement, but Russell caught her at the bottom of the stairs. There, he unleashed every bit of anger and hate he'd ever held back, bludgeoning the old woman and stabbing her 97 times. Afterwards, Russell felt clear-headed for the first time in a long time. He scrubbed the walls, ceiling, and floor around Anne's body. He stepped around her remains to shower in the basement. After that, he went home. Russell went to work the next day like it was any other Monday. He maintained an air of calm until that afternoon when his dad, Earl, called him. Earl told him he'd gotten a panic call from Anne's friend that morning. Apparently, Anne never showed up to breakfast and she didn't pick up her phone or answer her door. Worried she was sick or hurt, Earl booked it to his sister's house. By the time he got there, Anne's friend was waiting with a police officer in tow. Earl knew his sister kept a spare key in a holly bush near her door, but when he went to retrieve it, it was gone. After searching the garden, it finally turned up in the wrong bush. Anne hadn't moved that key in nearly 20 years. At that moment, Earl knew something was very wrong. He slowly pushed the door open and called out for Anne. The lights were on, but the house was eerily quiet. He and Anne's friend split up to look for her, with Earl going down to the basement. He discovered Anne's bloodied body at the foot of the stairs. After listening to Earl's story, Russell rushed over to his dad's house to comfort him. He was still there the next day when his cousin Jack Branson arrived. Jack used to be in the FBI, and Russell knew he was there for all the information Earl had. Russell stayed for the pleasantries, but when Jack said he couldn't wait to see Anne's killer executed, he took it as his cue to leave. He claimed he needed to check on Terry and the kids. 
While the Winstead family grappled with Anne's death, the Madisonville Police Department launched an investigation. They all knew Anne, some personally, but most because she was always setting off her own security system. So one of the first things detectives noted after arriving at her house was that the alarm hadn't tripped on the night she died. There were no signs of forced entry. When they reached her body, the officers recoiled in horror. It was a brutal scene, but they realized there should have been a lot more blood. The killer had done a remarkable job at cleaning up after themselves. Most of the blood was contained to one spot on the floor directly beneath her body. Besides that, there was practically no physical evidence at the scene. And considering Anne was still wearing thousands of dollars worth of jewelry, it didn't seem likely that it was a robbery gone wrong. It was looking like the perpetrator was someone close to home. Still, that didn't do much to narrow the list of suspects. And unfortunately for investigators, all of their early leads turned out to be red herrings. As authorities started an uphill battle, Russell continued to play the part of the grieving nephew. When the medical examiner released Anne's remains to the family, Russell was a pallbearer at her funeral alongside Jack. At the reception, he blended in with the sea of sad faces. Meanwhile, after days of fruitless searching and interviews, Madisonville PD finally caught a break. Local miner Jeff Hibbs told detectives about his and Russell's recent trip to the casino. He described how Russell had lost his temper and ranted about owing Anne a lot of money. The officers were in disbelief. Many of them knew Russell personally and this didn't line up with the guy they thought he was. But Jeff's story provided a clear motive so detectives forged ahead, and it didn't take them long to uncover the truth. When they looked into Russell's finances, officers discovered that he'd gone to the casino 236 times in the last year alone. The numbers were staggering. Clearly, Russell had a serious problem, but a gambling addiction didn't make him a murderer. They needed something that linked his money troubles to Anne's death. With this in mind, they went back to Anne's house and looked for more evidence. That's when they found her little red ledger. All told, Russell owed Anne almost as much as he did the casinos, approximately $74,000. Even more telling, the last entry in her book was for a $12,000 check from Russell, she'd written it down the Friday before she was murdered. The detectives could tell this was an important piece of the puzzle, but it wasn't enough to arrest Russell. In time, the police found Anne's other financial records, but no sign of the missing check. So investigators pulled up Anne and Russell's bank statements. Neither had any transactions for that precise amount. And like Anne, Russell also seemed to be missing a check Bingo, the discovery was enough to bring Russell into the station. When he arrived, Russell could barely make eye contact with the detectives. Something seemed suspicious the second they started questioning him. Out of nowhere, Russell pulled out a stack of note cards that he referred to throughout the interview. 
they accounted for his whereabouts nearly every minute of the weekend in question. Russell told the detectives that after church, he dropped his son off at his ex-wife's house. From there, he drove straight home. The entire story hinged on his current wife, Terry. When detectives spoke to Terry, she backed up his story, matching Russell's details almost verbatim. It sounded pretty rehearsed, but Terry didn't waver when detectives pressed her. That was until they told her the truth about Russell's casino trips. The betrayal played clearly across her face. It was the look of a woman who realized she was sharing her life with a complete stranger. No one was surprised when Terry came back a few days later with a completely different story. She confessed that Russell had asked her to lie for him. The truth was that he hadn't come home until nearly 9 p.m. that night. When he finally did show up, he made a beeline for the room and started to shower. Terry explained that initially she believed Russell was innocent, even if his actions that night were a bit odd. But in the days since her first police interview, he had become violent and erratic. Terry had even kicked him out of the house, but it seemed like he was stalking her. She was terrified, not just for herself, but for her children. She thought he was capable of murder. But even with Terry's testimony, the authorities didn't have enough evidence to arrest Russell. While they contemplated how to move the case forward, Terry filed for divorce. Somehow, those proceedings outpaced the investigation, and by the time the police were ready to detain Russell, he'd already fled to Costa Rica. The country was more than just a beautiful place to hide. It provided very specific benefits for Russell. Costa Rica didn't have the death penalty, and they refused to extradite criminals to countries where they might be facing such punishment, like the United States. As an added bonus, the nation was dotted with casinos. It was truly the perfect location for him. While Russell evaded capture in his tropical paradise, his cousin Jack worked hard to bring him to justice. Ever since he'd spoken to Russell at Anne's funeral, he knew his cousin had something to do with her death. In February of 2005, he let the world know when he got Russell featured on America's Most Wanted. Investigators were flooded with tips after the episode aired. Most of them were dead ends, but eventually the publicity paid off. In May of that year, Russell was spotted leaving a casino in San Jose. Even on the run, he hadn't changed his ways. He was still gambling nightly, supporting his habit by scamming anyone unlucky enough to get caught up with him but he was bound to slip up at some point. After the tip came in, Costa Rican officers arrested Russell. From there, the arduous extradition process began. The negotiations lasted for close to a year. Costa Rica agreed to send Russell back to the US, as long as the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty or life without parole. The US agreed and in February of 2006, Russell was finally back in the States. Madisonville officials were raring to start the trial, but Russell's attorneys did their best to delay the proceedings. And while his lawyers stalled, 
Madisonville investigators received a strange letter from a local inmate named Fred Roulette. Fred was about to go to trial for stabbing an elderly woman. Now he claimed he'd killed another one, Anna Mae Branson. The letter contained details the police had never released to the public. Fred described the murder weapon and even included a detailed drawing of Anne's home. For a moment, detectives worried they'd gotten everything terribly wrong. But then they realized that Fred Roulette's cellmate was Russell Winstead. The officers informed Fred that unlike Russell, he could receive the death penalty for the Branson murder. As soon as he heard that, Fred flipped, confessing that the entire thing had been Russell's idea. In exchange, he'd offered the trust funds for each of Fred's children. With his Hail Mary foiled, there was nothing left for Russell to do but face the judge and jury. His trial started on August 14, 2007, more than four years after Anne's death. Even with the lack of physical evidence, the case seemed pretty clear-cut. Russell's actions in the wake of Anne's murder did more to convince people of his guilt than anything investigators dug up. On August 30th, he was convicted of murder and first-degree robbery. He was sentenced to life in prison and won't be eligible for parole until 2030. After years of uncertainty, Anna Mae Branson's friends and family can finally breathe easy. And with her killer behind bars, her true legacy as a vivacious trailblazer can take its rightful place in the spotlight. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Russell Winstead, we found Murder in Mayberry, Greed, Death, and Mayhem in a Small Town by Mary Kinney Branson and Jack Branson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Natalie Pritzowski and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.